0: Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everyone, you are listening to Living the Dream and it's a lovely sun, sunny afternoon, a weekday afternoon. And this is Dave, you can follow me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. John?
1: Hi everyone, how are you going? I am sitting here with the lovely Simon Copland. Woo!
0: Woo! So Simon Copland, everyone would know from a his writing work, the incredible podcast, Queers, and a a recent piece uh, which he wrote about um, going to a far-right, you know, shenanigans.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what a fun day that was, (laughs) uh, going and seeing uh, Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux. Hello, everybody. Um, This is my second time coming on here. It's very nice, Mm. and thank you for welcoming me back um it's a it's, it's a lovely day here in brisbane it's nice to be back up in brisbane for a little while so um, i'm really glad to be here
0: basically when we heard you were coming back to brisbane it was we one step away from being at the airport to mug you for a follow-up podcast john you didn't tell our loyal listeners your twitter handle just in case they forgot
1: this is the uh the uh, simon copland appreciation show now we've actually changed our title and uh yeah you can find me at john Puccini on twitter
0: we you'll be tweeting what's Simon doing today. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, Simon, so the last time we spoke with you, we did an episode about the plebiscite, right? So, which I was, when I was thinking about the show, one of the things I found really funny is how much it's kind of disappeared. You know, the, you have this victory, um, a huge victory, I think, and then it's kind of disappeared from political consciousness that we had this win. And I was wondering, you know, for someone who's really got their eye on and involved in kind of queer politics in Australia, what was the impact of this victory and what have we done with that victory?
2: Well, I mean, I think this is one of the things that I was worried about during the plebiscite and during the... The opposition to the plebiscite or the postal survey—that that in opposing it and speaking and spending all of the time talking about the process and and how much we hated the process—or you know mainstream marriage equality advocates spoke about, a lot about how, that, how much they hated the process—that we were giving up an opportunity for having a big win that would have a, that would have momentum and that would lead to other things. Uh, and I think that that's exactly what's happened. We had a big win, um, and we're now back in this world where we assumed that Australia is the most conservative country in the world. You know, where people are talking about Australia being extraordinary conservative and you know a country that couldn't deal with this kind of stuff ever Um, and other sort of issues around LGBTIQ rights around LGBTIQ um, you know discrimination has just has just completely fallen off the radar there's just there is no national discussion about these issues anymore it's like something happened what you know what what was the outcome of the plebiscite it was that same-sex marriage got legalized and that's it and that's 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 literally it. And the disappointing thing is that there could have been so much more, but there hasn't been because of the way we dealt with it. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, it was a big win, right? Yeah. Like, it was a huge so win. I think that that's something as well. Like, let's understand this as a massive victory. So, what was your kind of reaction to the result? I guess, and was it as good as you thought it was going to be? And how should we understand it?
2: Well, I think we have to understand it as a huge victory. It was a big win, and. It was about, about in the range of where you know I, I was I was coming in very optimistic that we were going to have a big win that um, that it was going to be in the sixty something percent range. So it was about in the range that I expected it to be. You know I was I was really surprised and stunned by the, by the high turnout, the huge turnout. Um, you know we had a higher turnout. Here in Australia than we did, than they did in Ireland, um, and to think about the, the huge campaign and the fact that in Ireland it was like an it was a referendum, and we had a a, a postal survey a non compulsory postal survey, and we had a bigger turnout. You know that showed momentum on the side. There was a huge amount of momentum on the side of the yes campaign, and so yeah, when I when I, when I found out, I was overjoyed. Like, and I feel like I you know I like lots of other people went to a sort of public event. There had a people some friends of mine actually ran a. Um, run a picnic in the park in the morning because it was you know it was announced at ten o'clock in the morning. Uh we ran a picnic in the park and everyone sort of got together and they had a big screen and we watched the results come in and people were cheering, people were happy, people were popping champagne corks. We went to Braddon in Canberra last night when from Canberra and they shut down the street and there was a big street party. It was huge. Yeah
0: street party in Canberra that's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um and it was huge and then it was big the next day and then it's just sort of disappeared. And I think that's 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 really, you know, it, it is a big win that has not been acknowledged as a big win. And I think that that's the really odd thing about it, that we had something so momentous and that it just has not been acknowledged in that way at all. It's still, if people look back on it, it's looked back on as, you know, this is the thing that should never have happened, not as this was the thing that was a huge victory.
1: Uh, it, I was wanting to ask as well, just in terms of the organisations, like Australians for Marriage Equality that formed... Kind of, you know, had formed 10 years ago when this campaign really was kicking off, or more than 10 years ago. What what's happened to those groups now? Like, as you say, I mean, there's this issue where, yes, gay marriage has been legalized, which is fantastic. But then, what's the next step in terms of, the of other of so many other LGBTIQ issues? What are the what what's happened to some of these organisations?
2: Well, what's really interesting is I went um, earlier in the year, in January, I went to um, a conference in Melbourne called the. Oh, gosh, Better Together, called Better Together. Um, and it was run by uh, an organisation called the Equality Project. Uh, they used to be the Equality Party. I think you might remember a couple of years ago they ran in elections in Victoria, I think it was, running on a marriage equality platform primarily. Um, and they sort of framed themselves as... They, they framed this conference as being the sort of you know what? What's next? Let's come together as groups and as organisations to figure out what's next. And they and they spoke about you know wanting to create a sort of national LGBTIQ body because in Australia we don't really have that um, compared to you know in the US where you might have like the Human Rights Campaign which focuses on focuses on more. And I have huge critiques of that, but of that model. But this is what they wanted to do. And what was interesting to me about that conference was how I mean a part of it for me was the organisation, but I think also that it was just. The, the lack of substance that was there uh, to, to actually be thinking strategically about what it is that this movement looks like or what it is that a that, that, that anything looks like in terms of the, you know the core principles the core ideals that we want to that we want to be talking about and the core issues that we need to solve um, there was a lot of storytelling a lot of you know let's tell our, tell our stories of discrimination and let's talk about talk about it in that way you know, let's talk about it in a way that you know that is very common in, the, in these sorts of movements. Of you know, if we tell our stories, then people will just stop discriminating against us. But there was not a, str- a strategy. There was not a, a development of a strategy to say what are the issues that are still fighting? Where, where do we still face structural homophobia and transphobia and queerphobia, and how can we deal with that? It was a very personal, individualized identity politics face most approach. And I think that's where we're at. We're at a lot of media stories that tell the story of you know I suffer discrimination in this way. Let's have a social media storm about it, and then let's move on with no actual structural analysis or capacity to build any form of social movement.
0: Yeah, I think it's similar to the last time we spoke. You know, as soon as I hear you narrate that, my thinkings are Wendy Brown's state of injury, you know, the critique of a focus of injury, a critique on a focus of moralism, and an unwillingness to talk about power, you know, to be, like, really... Properly Machiavellian, but I remember you did a a series of, um, I think a series of shows about that conference on queers, and and one was an interview with a Greens politician, which I thought was incredible, because you really nailed them without them knowing it about how fundamentally anti-democratic they were. There was a moment in the conversation where they basically said, with issues like plebiscites, we think people should participate, but ultimately, you know, it should be the politicians and the authority, authorities that make the decision. That's corporatism, right? That's like, without being too hyperbolic, that's fascism, that's a soft fascism, you know, popular participation, but the experts make the decision. And this is from a party that one of its four principles is, is participatory democracy, right? Like, and so for me, it was like, how is that the takeaway? How is that? the, the takeaway from this victory is the problem is too much democracy? Mind-blowing. I mean,
2: I, mean, I think what you... I mean, that, was, that was with Janet Rice, who's the Greens' LGBTIQ spokesperson, and I think that there's two things that I've noticed there, is that... I mean, what you see is how opposition to the plebiscite resulted, and I think it was a strategic opposition that was based in a you know in, in short-term strategy that said that we can do this in parliament and we want to do it that way because it'll be easier. And it started off with that two, three years ago now when it was first proposed as a way to cut it off because they thought that we could get it done in Parliament and it was very much focused on what is the thing that we can achieve that we want to achieve and that's to get the legislation passed and they and then so it meant opposing it. And that, that's what they needed. That's what the particularly Australian marriage equality wanted to do. Um, and that then ended up in these very twisted very anti-democratic arguments and that and that was I was stunned by that too it was it was she was saying we need you know but yeah, part, you know everyone to be participate but you know we'll we'll consult but then the parliament needs to make the decisions that the the elites need to make the decisions and from a party that says you know that's supposed to be the most democratic it's just incredible like and 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 what's been interesting then so you had this huge victory that to me said participatory democracy public involvement is what we should be aiming for, that we had, you know, 14 years of governments, 13 or 14 years of governments holding back on marriage equality, and it wasn't until we had the mass participation that they were finally forced to do anything about it. And then what's been interesting is that you've seen this play out in discussions about other issues later down the track, and I think the best example of that is we've seen in Ireland this year that they had a huge vote that legalised abortion, which is incredible. If you think about Ireland legalising abortion by popular vote, it's incredible, and I would argue, I think it's hard to find the evidence, that, that the momentum from the marriage equality vote in 2015. Has a strong role in the momentum that allowed them to pass that legislation. Now they ov- to, to pass that vote. Now they obviously also had a huge campaign that it, that went on there, which is which was obviously integral as well. But there was momentum around social issues in Ireland that came from these sorts of mass popular votes. The discourse we saw in Australia, however, was how terrible is it that Ireland has to go through another vote and that Irish women have to deal with people discussing their body, you know, their yeah. their bodies in
1: public debates like this, yeah. straight after we'd had an, our own huge huge victory. I was, I was in Ireland. Um, sorry, I was I was in Ireland a few weeks before the um, before the vote, and it's very interesting that the complete polar opposite, I guess, sort of of the, the what I saw at least was heaps of young people out on the streets campaigning really hard to get abortion laws changed right it wasn't there wasn't i don't think i read any articles that really said that it was that it was something that 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 should be decided by the government by because you know no one trusts that the government's going to actually change anything and of course obviously as well this stuff is inbuilt into the irish constitution so it needed to be changed so i guess that there's some slight differences in terms of the way that the system runs there so when we had plebiscites that are just purely advisory while in ireland of course the referendum actually would change you know if it passed it and as, as it did it would change the change the law right so there are some differences and i guess the other thing i was thinking about just in terms of reflecting on the NGOization of social movements as well when we think about groups like a experience for marriage equality, and other, other like organizations. I've been doing some kind of research recently into kind of the emergence of Amnesty International and other sorts of NGO groups that moved away from a type of the more collective politics or politics that was elevating the stories of individuals who are suffering to as, as kind of an informational politics that just said, we'll collect all this information about people who are suffering, then we'll deposit it with governments and governments will then act on it. And that's, I guess, I would say that as like a historical germination point for some of the politics that we're talking about today in terms of of purely taking stories of suffering and putting and and placing them in the hands of government and saying, you need to act on this because of, you know, various conventions that you're party to or whatever, you know?
2: I, mean, and I think another element of that as well is that when you have the NGOization of social movements, what you end up with is uh, a few elite members of social movements or NGOs who spend their time walking the halls of parliament. And just like it, you know, just like has happened with the union movement in Australia, when you get attached to power, you sort of look to cling on to it. And I think what happened. I mean, I think in many ways, what happened with the with the opposition to the plebiscite was that you saw NGOs, some big NGOs, who saw the potential of their power, of them losing their power of, their, you know, their position of being able to walk the halls of parliament and convince MPs that that's that this is what needed to be changed, and they lost the, you know, even if it was not said directly and it's not the argument that's made, they lost their capacity to be the ones who made the change. In 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 you know, they you know, giving it over to the public was too much to handle because they wanted to be the ones to do that, and that's. That's a sad state of affairs, right? And that's, yes. that's a very sad state of affairs. And you can see that strategy that played out very strongly in Australia um, with, 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 the, with, with both marriage equality for the last 10 years. Everything was focused on parliament. Everything was focused on getting individual MPs to change their votes, one, you know, one vote at a time. And then when, when, a, when a break to that came, when a potential different approach came, they opposed it as strongly as they possibly could.
0: They kind of operate as brokers of identities or struggles to power, right? With the necessary flip side of that, which is a suspicion of mass and popular participation and a hostility to mass and popular participation as well. You know, I I kind of, you know, in my head, I try to go, how do all these pieces fit together? You know, how do we think about changes um, in the broader structures of the society? And part is like, how does it affect? ideology, right? How does it affect the structure of ideas in a capitalist society like Australia? So using my Facebook wall as the barometer of what is ideology in Australia it was amazing when um, the Irish abortion vote came through how I saw so many people in Australia needed to re narrate people's experience of victory as a defeat so you had these incredible images of you know people in Ireland in a square cheering and crying but the narration I was getting was like isn't it horrible that I've had to go through this? You know, it's like, it doesn't look like it's horrible. It looks like very heaven, isn't that the the quote? You know, to be... Like, it looks incredible, is what it looks like. And we saw that during the postal
2: survey campaign here in Australia, where a a group of researchers released a report on the Irish um, campaign, or the Irish same-sex marriage campaign, um, and the 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 report and it was, this was designed to build in I think it was actually pre the actual postal survey it was during the discussion about what the what you know what a plebiscite would look at look like and it was designed I think you know not not said in a way but it was designed very specifically to make it look like you know to make it look like the Irish experience was a horrible one and what was fascinating about that research uh, well I'll see if I can find it for you and I, we can post it on the show notes um, was that it said very specifically uh, that, that in the, in the in the media release it said that they had done research into the negative perceptions and the positive experiences that people had during this vote they only released the negative perceptions that people had that had experienced um so which made created a new story that said people went underwent immense immense amount of stress and and pain and homophobia which is probably true but they did not release and they and even though they said they would they still have not released the the other report which talked about the positive experiences people had um and what you often find and i've found this in, in some academic research is that Often people only will want to talk about the negative experiences when researching this sort of stuff. And in the occasions where people have spoken about the positive experiences in these sorts of public votes, often this occurs in the United States where there have been more public votes on same-sex marriage, what you find is that people also experience positive things, and that people report experiencing positive things, um, but we don't talk about that, that actually there is, there is positive things that comes out of pa- mass um, participation, even for the minority group that is being, dis- you know, that is being debated in a way, um, and that was not discussed at all in the Australian context. And if you go and have a look, you know, there's one book that has come out about the marriage equality vote in Ireland, which is called Ireland Says Yes, which is written by the lead campaigners. It is a glowing report of what happened and a glowing report about the nature of democracy in Ireland. I think I counted twice in like two separate sentences where they spoke about hardships that people faced. But otherwise they talk glowingly about how this was so empowering. Tien and Brady has said that, uh, who was one of the lead campaigners who, who was also involved in the Australian campaign, has said that the Irish campaign was something that brought Ireland together as a as a nation. Like that's a pretty that's a pretty amazing positive approach that they're that they're saying. Um, yet we in Australia have taken t- sort of and a, due to I, th- I believe sort of political strategy more than anything, look at that and now see it as entirely being negative. As, a, as an entirely awful experience that people had to go through and something that we should never have to do ourselves in Australia ever again.
0: Alison Pennington uh, wrote a blog post on our blog where one of the points that she made about this negative. Uh, discourse, or whatever word you want to use, around the plebiscite was how it transformed the radical approach to young people, where young people were no longer seen as the rebellious, active, threatening subject in society, but a weak, like childlike subject that needed to be protected from these horrible forces. It was a real like, don't, won't someone think of the children? And it's really interesting to see that transformation in radical thought. You know that like this kind of flipping of how we understand youth you know and I think that's a real loss like we should be celebrating the as an old person should be celebrating you know the rebellious creative capacities of the young which I'm sure John you could say is part of you know radicalism historically has been a key part right
1: yeah certainly um yeah I guess there's I think it's a focus on this concept like you were talking about a Wendy Brown's concept of of injury. I guess it's, it, it, it defines people by the experience, the negative experiences that they have of oppression. Like we, like I guess it comes down to an under, your understanding of oppression and how do you act on, act on, on oppression. Like in a way, you know, everybody in this society is oppressed in different ways. If you apply a Marxist understanding of it in terms of, you know, white, you know, working class people, men, people are oppressed in different ways. And, you know, obviously people from LGBTI backgrounds are oppressed in a much more pronounced and much more public way than they are, and I think that I think that that kind of creates, I guess, this concept. That it exacerbates kind of a concept of victim of, of victimhood in society, and it says that these people need to be, um, yeah, need to be looked after and protected. But if you see what happens, I guess, in terms of like what May sixty eight, which we're stressing the anniversary of right now, you know, is sparked by paradoxically into this, you know, the desire, it was sparked by the desire of um, of men and women to cohabit in dormitories. So in French universities, men and women, male female students, could not cohabit in dormitories. You know, so instead of, this was actually sparked by a desire for there to be a breaking down of barriers between people rather than, rather than the creation of saying, you know, we need to protect women from men, which is certainly the argument that the conservatives would have used in the French context to argue against the rise of the protest movement they would have said you know that men that 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 this is a protective measure but that the rebellion was against no we don't want to be protected by the state you know and 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 that was actually the seedbed interestingly on which that student led protest and student protest then emerges and then of course is joined by the working class in one of the most profound moments in you know 20th century history
3: uh-
2: well, and I think you can see this sort of protective narrative that runs not just in, this, in the plebiscite. I, think it, I mean, I think the plebiscite was one of the, the best examples of this. And I, could, and I could run through Wendy Brown's, you know, I could run through Wendy Brown's state of injury narrative through the whole plebiscite, and I actually have. And I have, maybe the one thing I do want to plug in this episode is that I have an article coming out with Australian feminist studies about the plebiscite that uses Wendy Brown's analysis um, to, to discuss how people approach to it. Um, but we can see this not just there, but we can see it across a whole range of things. So, you know, I have a little bit of a, a rant again about, about things like trigger warnings and about um, safe spaces and no platforming and these sorts of things, which are all, you know, designed primarily around protecting, and this in, in most of these cases, uni students from things that are harmful. But a, another, another really good example of this, and, and this one's a bit more complex in many ways, but I think it makes it much more interesting. Is the Safe Schools debate that occurred in Australia? So, for for our listeners who for the listeners who don't know, the Safe Schools was a is a program that was designed, not it was designed to uh, sort of to deal with uh, well, actually it was really designed to make LGBTIQ people feel comfortable talking about their identities in school. It's it's actually not an anti-bullying program, um, and it was attacked. Horrendously by the by the by the Australian conservative media to the point where it got gutted nationally and is now being dismantled across the country. It was a very small program, but it resulted in this huge campaign to sort of defend it. And what was interesting about this campaign is that the uh, the organisers of the Safe Schools said this is not an anti-bullying program. This is a affirming talking about people's identity, you know, talking about people's, you know, allowing allowing students to feel comfortable talking about their identity. It actually targeted LGBTIQ students. It didn't target the rest of the school population in their sort of very positive, more positive kind of way. And I have some critiques of it as being a bit identity politics focused, but I think that that was a positive approach but when the campaign came to defend it it automatically started talking about bullying of students it automatically started talking about the need to protect students it talked about how safe schools saves lives the idea that you know that we have all of these these young students who are very very likely to commit suicide to kill themselves to face bullying and that they needed a program to come down from the top to save them um and to save them and and that if they didn't you know and that that, that through dismantling this we were going to be you know letting you know hundreds of say, of kids die and what's Fascinating about that, and I've done a little bit of research this with a colleague of mine called Mary Lou Rasmussen, who's also my supervisor. We've got a, um, a book chapter coming out about this. Is that she's done research that, that shows that actually, if you look, you can see that it's young people who are often leading these sorts of programs, and then there are, you know, when safe schools is being dismantled, it's young people who have taken the driving force to say we need this, and to develop their own curriculums, and to develop their own materials, and often to develop them outside of school, and that young queer people are actually extremely resilient and grow up to be extremely resilient because of their circumstances. And yes obviously some commit suicide and that is awful and we want to stop that but there is actually a whole bunch of resilience that exists within young queer people and focusing on that resilience and allowing more people to have that resilience is a much stronger approach than saying we need a top-down program that can save them somehow and then we need to defend this somehow by having this top-down
1: program that sort of protects them in some kind of way When I think about this I think about the way that the child has been mobilized particularly by like humanitarian groups for, hun- for over a hundred years, yeah. kind of since the Save the Children organisation was born out of World War One and the disasters after World War One, when they started using images of children, of yeah. like of
2: children yeah,
1: no, that's right, yes, yes, children, um, and you know the way that those images of children and of children's vulnerability has a huge cultural significance that's been developed over a se- over over a century, in um in in Western societies, the uh, and there's parallels with the development of childhood as a concept in and of itself obviously so we can't you know like that that's very much drawing on pre-existing cultural ideas that that, that that these organizations imagine at least that people have it's hard to break through those assumptions and to make it think you know that we should talk about resilience is actually you know it, it, it's a bit harder for those groups to understand another thing I'll just plug briefly on this hot topic of, of no of no platforming in other groups is that these also have a history and my comrade evan smith is writing a book about no platform at the moment but where it actually comes out of and then is in the 1970s in the uk where there's a huge anti-racism movement and that that no platforming people is part of a huge and a one strategy amongst many in a large anti-racist movement which involves not only no platforming not only protesting outside um, you know meetings of these people but also organizing in communities of people who are being targeted by racist violence um, and, and 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 attempting to move and creating cross uh, cross class cross racial alliances you know um, and this is a time of rock against racism as well you know like it's a moment this whole part of this moment and if we divorce the concept of no platforming from that historical context then we miss how it has collective origins and it was a tactical, I suppose, approach that's now been moved up to a strategic, if you want to employ like a Leninist understanding of it. So we moved up to a kind of to this to this higher level of approach.
0: Well, we should probably maybe move on to talking about uh, Simon's work on on this very question. But I just wanted to make two other, maybe three comments about the plebiscite. So the first thing is one of the real things I enjoyed about the plebiscite was how solid the Queensland vote was. And, you know, more evidence to, you know, kick southern chauvinism and undermine this idea that, that not... Because there's an idea in Australia, this kind of snobbish anti-democratic democratic politics of a particular kind of left elite. Often gets expressed in an anti-Queenslandism. So even in the Lib spill of last week, since Dutton was from Queensland, it was seen as you know it, this is Queensland voters somehow yeah. causing and, and, a sh- and, and with the Fraser
2: Anning thing as well. I think yeah. we saw a very strong you know Queensland racists yeah. that got that gave us gave
0: us Fraser Anning. And then the, I guess the um, second thing I'd like to say as well is that I think as well that you know while we haven't been celebrating the vote, I think it has really contributed to the continual destabilisation of the right and made them crazier, yep. right? Because a lot of, you know, con- the conservative political forces in Australia bases it- itself an idea that it represents some kind of otherwise unrepresented silent majority. So to be confronted with that, mm. I think they've lost their minds, yep. you know? And in part, I think, the, you know, the lib spill that we've seen or the proliferation of, like, increasingly... Uh, variant right wing forces that engage in like constant stunts including or, and including to try to organize around like opposition to trans issues there was i'm not sure if you saw it there was this crazy one nation video which has one of their politicians just, like, holding, you know, pieces of paper saying, it's like, imagine Australia without best friends. Imagine Australia without, like, boys and girls. Imagine Australia without Winnie the Pooh. Like, and it's just like, you know, this is a party that we go, OK, these are, um, you know, these are rural conservative populists who, in the middle of a drought consider their issue to be Winnie the Pooh, right? Like, And I think that's had a real impact. But also as well, like, I hadn't thought about the gay marriage plebiscite until I went to a gay marriage, marriage recently. And it was fantastic. Like, it was quite interesting there because at that specific wedding, you know, they talked about the politics of it, how one of the women who was getting married, her mum had campaigned and had, like, letterboxed, you know, every house it worked on the phone, you know, and otherwise, you know, lovely but anyone's kind of mum, right? And it was like, that was amazing because it's like, that was the only point I'd been to so far where it's like these people's lives have been made freer because of collective action, right? And that was brilliant. Then, you know, talking about kids, I've got kids, my kids were there, there were lots of other kids there. And I'm like, well, they're going to grow up and in 20 years, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, gay marriages, that's what I went to when I was four you know like the impact of that victor, of victory if we're worried about children well what's good for them is victory you yeah, know yeah. like they're going to grow up in a freer world you know that's more important than than any uh, kind of damage I think
2: and, and, and like I mean I, th- I think the, the easiest thing to say is we won and that is something that we should be che- you know that we should be excited about and that we should be um, that we should be celebrating, we should still be celebrating, and, it, and it's good to hear that people are celebrating in, in that kind of way. Because I suspect that there are other weddings that people might be going to, which which wouldn't even engage with the, with that question at all. Um, although I, I suspect that there are many people, many many people, who who really did get a lot from the process, and actually, and I was one of those people who really did get a lot from the process. You know, g- you know, connecting with with colleagues and with friends and with family about the issue, going door knocking myself. Doing phone banking and being able to talk to people and have such, you know, affirmative responses was really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we should be really excited about that and 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 learning from that in a way, in a positive way, that says that we, you know, that there are positive things that come from campaigning. Campaigning is a is a way to is a way to build solidarity and build connections with the community. And and that's something that you know I think that would, is a really great thing. So why not celebrate that in in as many ways as we can?
0: Brilliant. Okay, let's shift on. So um, for those that haven't been paying attention, Australia is going through this particular cultural phenomena at the moment where kind of any two or third bit kind of right-wing YouTube star now comes to Australia to make a fortune. And so they do it. You know, it seems to be a different one every couple of months, uh, and they do these speaking tours. They're not cheap. There's normally various different levels of counter protest. But Simon, you recently went along and attended one of these talks. So I'd like to hear about, uh, and you wrote about it as well. You t- you live tweeted it, which made you kind of temporarily famous. Yeah. You know, so um, it, which. I was not yeah, we, you know, I, I, was like, I was like, oh, I'll just Google Simon Copland, Laura Southern Talk, and all these articles come up. Well, I think you made journalists' lives really easy where they just had to like go, oh, this article wrote itself. So uh, if you want to talk about like your choice to attend, the content, and then some of what you think are the political imica- implications for radicals from that experience.
2: Yeah. Okay. So. Um, so. Yeah. I went to to see Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux, who are both Canadian um, right wing activists, YouTube stars. Uh, I don't know what you call, what, you know, there's, there, I don't know how they define themselves, but it does, that doesn't really matter. They are very much on the anti-multiculturalism sort of brigade, so they're, that's that's their kind, they kind of the main thing. Um, I went f- mostly, mostly for research. I, I'm doing my PhD in, um, in, in right wing organisations, pr- primarily in men's rights organisations. So they're, they're not going to be a, a study top, you know, a, a field of study for my PhD, but I wanted to go to see what the kind of the mood would be like, to, to experience it, to see who was there, to try and get an understanding understanding of, of everyone was there, so it was kind of a, um, an ad hoc or a sort of um, casual research experience for me. Um, and, you know, I got the tickets for Sydney uh, and thought, you know, this would just be an interesting experience, basically. Um, the reason I actually live-tweeted it, I wasn't intending to live-tweet it. I, I wanted to tweet a little bit because I was kind of worried about there being... Because uh, there have been people who have taken photos of these events. And I was kind of worried about people taking a photo and seeing me at the event. And yeah. Yeah. being like, what the fuck is that dude doing there? Um, so I wanted to tweet it to, to, to... I wanted to just do some tweets to... Um, to, to, t- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to explain why I was there. To explain why I was there. And what happened was that I also took in a notebook just to take notes of what was you know, being said. And then the lights went down and I was like, oh, I can't see anything. I can't see my notepad at all. So I was like, I'll just tweet this so I can have a public record of what i so I can go back and look at it and remember what what's being said and then I started to tweet it and then it just exploded it absolutely exploded I, I gained a thousand followers in a day um, from a base of like 2,000 followers so it was like um, it was like huge and as you said a, lot, a bunch of people wrote articles about it I think one of the interesting things was that people have recorded these um, they rec- someone recorded the Melbourne event so they did Melbourne Sydney and Brisbane um, and then they went to Auckland but their Auckland event was cancelled um, people did the Melbourne someone recorded the Melbourne event and released it online but it's an hour long event or two hour long event so no journalist was really going to sit down and watch the whole thing to really understand what was being said. Um, So I think that me tweeting it in a sort of compact kind of way actually gave people the space to understand what was being said in that space and I've had people say so the, the, the event in New Zealand was was it was cancelled um, and I've had some people report back to me that that my that the Twitter feed that I had has actually created a bunch of outrage in New Zealand um, it was I, that most of the followers I got or most of the responses I got were from people in New Zealand who were concerned about them coming and someone has a couple of people have said to me that they think that the Twitter feed had enough of an impact to get the, the venue to cancel their event which is really interesting. Um, so what I mean, what was said there was really fascinating. So I mean, Lauren Southern is this young; she's 23. She's uh, very photogenic, very charismatic. Um, has a has a huge YouTube platform. That uh, that she's done a, a, like she's you know really built f- built for herself. She's done a documentary about the genocide in South in South Af- South Africa called Farmlands, and she also is very famous for going to Europe and trying to stop like getting trying to stop um, boats from from crossing um, the Mediterranean, like sort of getting in, in the way and, and being very active. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I and mean, what was fascinating to me, so she was she was the, the headline bill basically. She was the main one. And all of the news coverage was focused on her. The day before she, um, they, we, we went to this event. She, she did this drive out to Lakemba to talk about Lakemba being a no-go zone. You know, they, the the right loves to talk about these no-go zones that you know exist where, where where Muslims take control and you can't. And you know, a police officer came and said to her that she was causing a bit of a, a disturbance, and she then just declared that the that, that, that Sydney was under Sharia law and blah, blah 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 blah. You know, she was trying to create controversy. What was interesting, were, though, so she was, the, you know, and so she was getting all this media attention, and nobody even knew that Stefan Molyneux basically w- w- was also speaking at this event. Um, what was interesting to me is that when you get there, Stefan Molyneux for the crowd was far more popular, far more popular. Um, and so when when he he, w- he spoke first and he came out and people were cheering, people clearly knew him. You had some really rusted on people who knew him he has a much he's, he's older so he has a much longer history his his YouTube is very different in that um, hers is like 3 or 4 minute videos his is every second day an hour long like interview or an hour long rant or something like that it's, it's much more longer longer stuff um but anyway, so what, what he spoke about... Um, uh, so they spoke about two different things. So he he spoke, and this was the thing that shocked me the most, was that he spent his time talking about Aboriginal people um, and basically going through a very... I consider very disgusting um, attack on Aboriginal culture, Australian Aboriginal culture, um, arguing basically... Uh, So what he argued was that Aboriginal culture is inherently violent and that he sort of went through these these lists of, of violent things that Aboriginal people did that have been documented that Aboriginal people did... And did so as a way to justify colonization so he what he was doing was engaging in the Australian history Wars as a Canadian um, and sort of basically saying that what we did and I, I, I can't remember the exact quote but he said something like you know uh, people say that you came here and, and and colonized what I say here is you came here and saved people from from, from, from thousands of years of violence or something like that a real justification of colonization and engagement in the history wars and a sort of this promotion of Western culture and these of, of Western of Western um, you know, colonisation of Western of Western history and and, fi- and and going back to justify it in many ways, and and what was interesting about that is you know and that was I, I found really 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 awful. At one point of time, uh, he was he was describing a, a practice, and I, and I don't know how factually correct any of these are. So he's describing a practice in which. Um, uh, uh, some Aboriginal uh, tribe or some sort of community would punish young girls by sticking their fingers in ants' nests and then in, in bull ants' nests and then the ants would bite them and their fingers would swell up and then someone from the crowd yelled out because the crowd was really engaged someone from the crowd yelled out stop it, you're making me aroused um, in this kind of like awful you know, and then people cheered and laughed at that and it made me feel sick um, and so he was there, and then there was, st- and then and then Lauren came, and she sort of was much more, she was much less charismatic in a strange kind of way, because what she was said was much less awful, um, but she sort of took on this more sort of theoretical argument against multiculturalism, saying that multiculturalism doesn't mean cultures coming together it means having like separate cultures that exist next to each other and that you can't actually blend cultures together because they have different values that underpin them and and, and obviously and then underpinning all of that is this sort of very western chauvinist idea that western culture is better and that we should just be pro- promoting western culture and assimilation with western culture in these kinds of ways um, but what was interesting for me was that she was the media star but he was the star Within the, within the people who attended, within the people who knew them um, and, and that was kind of sad given how I th- what he said was much more uh, horrific in my mind. She did not, I mean she has in the past, but she did not in her spe- speech this time go after particular individual groups that much or she didn't really attack individuals in that kind of way. She sort of took it at a more theoretical level. I disagreed with it in much more, but it, it, her framing was much stronger in many ways because she took it at that level. Um, but. Uh, yeah, there was a real interesting dynamic in the room and w- about about their about their, their different popularity.
0: That's super interesting. Like, uh, look, I, I, I've been vaguely aware of Stephen Molyneux's work, Stephen, Molyneux? Stephen, Stephen, yeah. Stephen Molyneux's work for a couple of years, but previously I associated him to be some kind of like annoying, you know, Mises like libertarian egghead, you know, like I think for a long period of time, his videos were very kind of that voluntarist libertarianism, and it'd be interesting to see that if he has pivoted more to a white nationalist politics recently, if it was always there, and I think actually, you know, and of course I think I've got this vague suspicion that actually, you know you know, five or six years ago there were lots of like young men who were libertarians I think libertarianism has died, you know and some kind of alt-right politics have replaced it, you know even to the level, this is really interesting, I you know Judith Sloan, who writes for The Australian? You know, she, she had an article after the Lib Spill where she, like, called herself a nationalist that the fight was between nationalism and globalism. This is someone who's been, like, a major neoliberal for 20 years and said, oh, globalism's bad. Globalisation, she said, is good, but globalisation is just, you know, nation-states making agreements with each other, which is fucking mental, right? Because high globalisation was the formation of supranational organisations. But I think there is this pivot on the right from a kind of market libertarianism to more of an alt-right, soft fascist position.
1: It's actually something that's that like um, you should read the work of Quinn Slobodian he's actually done like looking at the there's actually a lot of historical precedent for the racist arguments and the neoliberal people imagine neoliberalism is like a concept which is colorblind right but it's not the adherence neoliberalism have always had a racist view of the world but the people in the Mont in society there was a, there's been a significant split basically in the last 10 to 15 years between people who are basically who, who, who talk about, you know, culture as being immutable and kind of cultures as, you know, and that some people are ready for neoliberalism and some people aren't. Some people will always be colonised some people will have freedoms, will have, this, will have the freedoms, you know. So there's this, yeah, yeah like this is actually not something that's just emerging, I think, over the last five to ten years. I think it actually has a historical genesis in the thought of many neo, many neoliberals, actually.
0: And historically in liberalism. You know, like, because I guess at some level, you know, that liberalism is inseparable from a colonial project, right? You know, you can find it in Mill about the Indians or the Irish or, or whatever. Um, but it's also interesting, like, what you're talking about is, in to experience in that flesh, the kind of enjoyment of transgression that this kind of right has been able to mobilise. And to link our two conversations together, I wonder how much, you know, with the left retreating... Left, whatever, from a project of, of power, of real power from below. What's replaced it has been a strategy of morality. What we try to do is impose a social morality, which has opened up, and maybe that works, maybe that doesn't work. But it's a it's created the space for an attack, which is the transgression of morality. And we should know from when the moralist used to be the right that there's a great pleasure, a renaissance, that you can get from transgressing moral laws and that all moralisms are at some level hypocritical and I really see the right has been really effective at leveraging that we are the people who now say the un- the, the unspeakable and even if it's a gag and you know
2: yeah no I 100% agree and I think there's two there's two points to be made there first is that you can see in the narratives of these right-wing groups, you can see it at the, at, the, at the event. I think Lauren Southern particularly touched on this. Actually, no, Stefan Molyneux did as well. But if you go... So a lot of the work that I do for my PhD is, is looking at online discourse. I'm looking at men's rights groups or, you know, sort of uh, misogynist men's rights groups, which are on uh, on the on, particularly on, on Reddit. And what you see quite frequently is people talking about... How the, the sort of the left, the liberals, in oh, the liberals, the liberal elite, they talk about the li- they love to talk about the liberal elite who have created some sort of rules um, and a whole bunch of moral rules that people must follow, and that we are sort of the, the underdogs who are who are who are challenging that power. You know, they love to talk about attacks on free speech. They love to talk about, about the attacks on free speech because it builds into this idea that there is an elite that is holding them back, that is that is stopping them from doing so, and the way that they are doing that quite frequently is through claims to trans- transgression. And you can see, you know, the 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 best example of that is Milo Yiannopoulos, who deliberately, deliberately, and I, and he knows he does it deliberately, um, and he says he does it deliberately, breaks those 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 moral codes and feeds off it, and he loves to feed off it, and t- and then he talks about when he when people attack him for it, he then says I'm you know they're, they're trying to shut down my they're trying to shut down my free speech, um, and so. And that's where he gets so much of his support from. Is 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 trying to transgress these moral codes that we've developed. These moral codes that we that we not not only moral codes that the left has, the left in inverted commerce has developed, but the, but the the moral codes that the left is increasingly working towards engaging with the state to to codify. And I, and maybe another good example of this is Jordan Peterson, who came to who came to fame from opposing um, legislation that sort of made it mandatory that uh, to to people to use. For, for people to use other people's preferred pronouns. Um, and it was, again, the, the left working to codify something within the state to determine what people's speech in this should be. And he... He he came to fame through, through 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 saying I won't do that through breaking those moral codes, um, and you can understand why that is popular and why that reaches out, and you can see it from the persp- perspective of a, of, of, a, of of a lefty who if you look back, you know, 20 30 years, th- we were the ones doing that. You know, the left was the one that was were the ones doing that, and I think that it's interesting to see how that is playing out at this point of time.
0: And also then the that kind of convergence between like, what is a well-intentioned radical approach towards the moralism engaging with the state and then becomes part of like a state corporatist management of conflict you know which is about well okay we can take this up because what we want is stability you know so we can put an end to that but your article that you wrote on this you finish with i guess kind of a critique aimed towards the left and a suggestion of a new way a different way forward to engage with with far-right politics and their appeal can you run us through that argument
2: yeah, I think. I mean, I think I have two critiques, and one of them I didn't cover so much in the argument in the article, but I'll I'll start with that one. And I think that the first is we have to be careful not to over-egg the influence and the size of the far right, particularly in a place like Australia. And I mean, this connects back to our discussion on the plebiscite. You know, in a, in a in a country that last year had 61.6% of people vote in favour of same-sex marriage, we do not have this huge movement coming out, or this or this majoritarian movement coming out to oppose social progress in many ways. Like we just cannot and I think that what the the risk that we have and we've seen uh Milo come, we've seen Jordan Peterson astra- arrive to Australia, we've seen Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux. It looks like uh, um, Stephen Barron might be Stephen what's his name? Bannon, Stephen Bannon might be coming. It seems like Gavin Gavin McInnes might be coming to Australia as well. It's becoming Australia is is is, is being seen as a place to, for people for these people to come. And it's, and it's easy to then create a narrative that, look, there's this huge movement that they're appealing to, that there's this huge underground that they're appealing to. And I think that we can see that, you know... Uh, 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 I hesitate to bring this up, but, you know, the... the um the uh, tweets that we often see in Australia as being an inherently racist country or an awful country, or uh, you know, and uh, you had a uh, you had a bit of discussion with Osman Faruqi or about this uh, with his tweets about that. Now those tweets, he ended up being doxxed because of those tweets, and that is an awful thing, and I want to say that's an awful thing. But I think his argument is inherently wrong. Um, that you know, uh, uh, in a, in a way that you know, to to label us as an extremely conservative place as an inherently conservative place. You know, it just defies the evidence that we have and a very recent evidence that we had in November last year that, that said the complete opposite. And so we have to be careful not to over-egg this.
0: I guess, like my, just to refer to, to that, I think that there is a kind of um, politics at the moment that explains the persistence of racism in Australia, even after the end of the white Australia policy, as some kind of inescapable essence that exists either in you know, white Australians as a people and individually or in the social body. And the problem with that is having such a non-materialist approach it is a priori brackets out your ability to transform that society you know like it it stops you from explaining racism as something that arises out of a society a formation that is an antagonism that anti-racism also exists to and we can fight and so what you're left to is just basically a, a sophisticated twitter version of this country stuffed you know like and so that's what i kind of ob- object to um, particularly when it seems to be, you know, and it comes from a series of kind of columnists, so I think, you know, and I don't think they should be attacked, and I agree, you know, the, the doxing of Osman and Faruqi is fucking gross, but you know, the, the argument doesn't actually open up the door to an anti-racism.
1: What I want to say about that, I guess, is what I did say at the time, was that I think that this is self perpetuated because it's become the modus operandi of both Labour and the Liberal, increasingly the Greens. It's a, it's a political class view of Australians, is that they're racist and we need to buy them off with hard border policies, with cuts to immigration, with population debates that no one cares about. Like, no, if you do this, look at the surveys, people care about education and they care about housing. They don't care about, you know, like these abstract population questions that aren't like connected to material reality. They don't care about these these questions. This is the political class, you know, so it's the columnists on the one hand, but it's the political class that's inventing a lot of these problems, right? Like, and they, they can as such kind of fashion subjectivities that they that that, that are that, that they that they hold. They can fashion them in the electorate.
2: I, mean, I think the obsession we have with asylum seekers is an obsession that is one that's based in the political class. And and um, you know, and I've seen, I mean, actually going back to the Libs Bill I've seen I saw some concerns. People said that you know, if Peter Dutton gets elected, he could run a really racist campaign, and it would he would get this huge, massive support. I think Benjamin Law tweeted this, talking about how he was really concerned that he could actually just get a huge amount of support based off a racist campaign that could get him elected to government. And I was like, well, where's your evidence for this? Yeah, right. Actually, if you look, you know, if you look at our recent history, Kevin Rudd ran into 2007 on a very pro on a, on a, on a policy that ch- that fundamentally changed our immigration policies to be much more relaxed and got an overwhelming majority ran it in 2013 a much more hardline policy and got unelected like there's no the, the connection here isn't actually the connection doesn't actually exist it's something that that exists in our political class and that exists in our media class in particular the media are obsessed with it um, but doesn't necessarily. Per- percolate down to the rest of the population.
0: Yeah, that was amazing. Is like the conservative force of mainstream politics was self-immolating last week. There was this narrative coming out of the left that, that you know this was the right rising in strength. Like what are the fuck are you talking about? You know they're like on mainstream levels. They're collapsing. They have no policy. You know they have no policy base anymore. They're devi- divided. The voters massively dropped. The idea that Dutton will stride forward, you know, and, or, or to understand him as some kind of Trump you know, was just fucking crazy. But let's pull back to your article and the argument you were making. Well, I mean, I think this
2: goes back So the second point that I, that I would make about this is that, and this goes back to some of the arguments we've already sort of touched on here, is that we can't, if we're going to look at the people who are attending this event, for example, you know, I don't think we're going to go out and change Stefan Molyneux's mind. I don't really want to try and stay, change Stefan Molyneux's mind. It's not really the goal here. But if we do see people who are attached to this, and I think it's more relevant in places like the United States where we have a mass of people who did vote for Donald Trump, um, and we have, in, in in Europe, we do have people who are voting for far-right-wing parties, and we have to acknowledge that that, that reality does exist. Um, but to label, you know, what what the... The the desire of the left is to do to do is just to label those people as racist and to end the conversation there. You know, you are racist, you are sexist, you are homophobic, and it doesn't just exist with far right parties. It exists in in anybody who says a racist, homophobic, sexist thing. We label them as that thing. They're then that, and that is and that is it, and that's the end of the story. I think that that is. A useless a way to approach things because it does not engage with how we can change society it is based entirely in a moralistic approach that says I am better than you and I just want to lord my bitterness over you because I am I am woke and you are not um, and that is not helpful it does not change society in any kind of way so what I was trying to argue is that we, what we need to do is actually understand the material reasons why people might be might, might be attached to these sorts of organisations, might be attached to these sorts of groups. And I've, I, there's a really excellent book that I've just recently read from Michael Kimmel called Healing from Hate. Um, and what he does is uh, research uh, organisations uh, in Germany, Sweden, the United States and the UK... Uh, that work to get people out of radical, far-right radical organisations. So uh, there's two, in uh, one in Sweden and one in Germany called Exit, and one in the US called Healing from Hate. No, that's the name of the book. I can't remember the name of the book. Um, uh, and what they do is they work, they, they're normally uh, they're normally former so people who have been part of, the, in this ca- these cases, white nationalist or neo-Nazi organisations, uh, and they work with people to get them out of the organisations. And what he basically found is that People in these organisations are not attached to the ideology, are generally very young, they're very much not attached to the ideology, they're often very socially isolated and very socially alienated, and and these far-right organisations were the first people, the first organisations, the first groups that told them that they mattered in some way. And so they, they were the first groups that provided the, com- the community, they were the first groups that said, come, and, come to a party, you know, come to a party and do this, and that... That it was the the connection of the, some form of connection that existed that uh, gave them something that gave them a reason to enter the groups, and then what the, the the solution to this problem was to find material alternatives that people could live in that that that, that you know to find other forms of connection, to find work, to find you know a, you know decent living condition, conditions, to work on those material issues rather than to just to label them as a racist and then and then be be done with it.
0: Yeah, so it's it's interesting because. You know, earlier on this conversation, John did bring up the question of no platforming and mentioned it as, like, one tactic amongst many. And so um, in the 1980s in the UK against the National Front at the time, one of the groups that actually did most of the kind of street biffing against the National Front was this split from the SWA called Red Action. And, you know, they were the people that, you know, who got kicked out of the SWP because they were considered squattish, which means, you know, they organised effectively to fight fascists. But the the evolution of their politics was that they also then did a diagnosis as part of anti-fascist action that what you needed to do was fill the void. So by the end of the 80s or into the 90s, they developed effectively an electoral politics, which is the Independent Working Class Association, and began to run on, like... um, you know, local local material issues of the working class in that area. And it's incredible, like... Um, and that, I think that's where a lot of anti-fascists kind of, you know, act- the point gets to where it says, OK, yes, when we see fascists politically organising, you know, on the street, we have to organise to combat them. But that is, if we're going to take the military metaphor seriously, that's not the same strategy you use all the time. There's other tactics that need to be used in that period too, which is also aren't dealing, to, dealing with the uh, the material basis of the ideology. And, like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the concept of ideology lately, and that's one of kind of, you know, Marx doesn't... He only gives us some hints, but it's, you know, this idea that, you know, social being determines social consciousness. You know, if we are dealing with these kind of fucking insanely wacky ideas... And I think that's the other thing about, you know, what you're talking about. They're not just reaction ideas, they're crazy. You know, they're, they're crazy ideas. But that craziness doesn't come from a failing of the people that craziness comes from the craziness of our society right and so a radical response is about well how else do you address that the craziness of that of that society um and particularly like the difficulty is it's often coming from areas where the small elements of of radicals and friends and comrades aren't you know like it's you know it's places where you know, the first time I met someone and had a conversation who was a LaRoucheist, you know, with the Citizens Electoral Council, uh, was an ANU campus that come in from Bathurst. You know, so this is, you know, someone in Bathurst who was kind of one to an old-style social democratic politics and then become a, a LaRoucheist. I'm like, yeah, you're right. There's, there's no, fun. Where's the left in the Bath- in Bathurst, you know? like It's hard to even, like, because we've just conceded it. Anywhere, anywhere on the other side of the Great Dividing Range, that's theirs, you know? Like anywhere, anywhere north of, well, it depends where you draw the line, Byron or um, West End, you know, it's, it's someone else's. You know? and, but it really points out the level of the challenge. It's interesting. Like, I mean, I always think about you know
1: Marx's often misquoted dictum. You know, religion is the opium of the masses. He adds to that the second point of that that's often forgotten. It is the heart of a heartless world. And that's something that is important, I think, in a lot of these. And a lot of these situations is you know it's easy to dismiss people for being racist or for being obscurely religious in various ways. But you know you need to understand the social condition as to why they join these organizations, which is often for community, which is often for some sort of solace, some sort of as you as you were saying. These these are people who are isolated. You know, they're like. A lot of them are just like young men who are totally like, who might not be employed in a lot of places. You know, they're, they're like, how high is youth unemployment in Australia, especially amongst young men? It's like 20% or something ridiculous. Like, you know, these are people who don't have the same bearings in society that they once were. They wouldn't be members of trade unions, they wouldn't be members of religious organizations, they wouldn't be members of, of, of clubs or associations, you know? So where do they go to, you know? And, that, and I think it's important not to dismiss that, but to understand the social foundations of where that of where that comes from. And
2: I, and I think also these are people who are looking for a reason to understand or looking for an yeah. explanation to understand the social condition they're in. And the dominant left explanation these days is that they are the problem. You know, that yeah. particularly for you know young men for example, the dominant explanation is that men are the problem yeah. and that that, that and, and that they need to learn to check their privilege or, or do whatever. And so of course that doesn't appeal to them because you're not you know, when you don't have a job, when your family's in crisis, when, you know, you have no money, it's very hard to see yourself as a very privileged kind of person. Um, but we don't have an explanation in the left of what is the problem. Or, you know, the mainstream left, the, the Twitter left, doesn't have an explanation of what is the problem except for individual bad people or collective groups of bad people, but no analysis of the structures. And strangely enough, the right, you know whether I, you know, I disagreed with it fundamentally, but, you know, Lauren Southern had an argument that was based in a structural, you know, some sort of structural analysis of what what a problem was. I disagreed with her analysis entirely. I thought it was horrific, but I can see why it appeals to people because it gives an explanation to what is going on. It gives an explanation to why our streets are congested. It gives an explanation to why people don't have good education. It gives an explanation to all of these things. I think it's the wrong explanation, but we are not on the left providing an explanation either, except to say that you as an individual are the problem and you need to fix yourself.
1: Sorry, I just wanted to add one thing to that, which is that I think it's really important to think about the composition of these groups as well, because it's easy to imagine that these groups are made up of traditional, like lumpen, like low working class people with low educations and low social capital, low understandings. And, you know, you can find those people, but equally, like some of the real points that are being made, some of the research that's being done is that these appeal, you know, and you can call me a crude Marxist, but they appeal to the middle classes. And this is what fascism does, right? It actually appeals to the middle classes, to the people who are... Who who, who who were most threatened by the possibility of both, you know, of big business, of government, you know, oppressing them, but also the possibility of, you know, of, of disempowered workers for coming together and doing something meaningful, you know, like, the, the, that's what, you know, when you saw the Charlottesville thing, you know, like, people were like, these are just middle-class, these are middle-class, these are middle-class men who are, who are engaged in these movements, so when we misdiagnose fascist or racist movements as being made up of the working class, then, you know, you... You're, 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 this is a problem, of course, when thinking about the white working class and there are lots of other problems with that, but this is one of them. You know, is that you're just kind of propagating this weird mistruth.
0: I think that always, for me, raises... Like, I'm not even sure that I think the middle class is a useful category, but I think I know what you're trying to say, um, like, by it. Like, I'm going to have to run back to work in a moment. Classic living the dream episode. Um, but there, there was a couple of things I did want to say is that one thing I think about the right, as you've described it, is how good they are at, you know using contemporary technologies they're on youtube right and it, until like the relative development of things like stations like contrapoints, you know really a radical left has not used um used used youtube or social media you've certainly had a kind of like woke identitarian elitist left that has used it the second thing is is how the categories that the that they're, they're both talking about are not the categories of race but culture and that's super interesting and you know they're not from what you've you've said they're not actually using those categories different from a mainstream or a soft left understanding of culture they're just reversing the polarity of who gets who gets the good points right like they still think that we live in a world where there are these separate things called cultures, and some are good and some are bad, and they explain what's going on in society. I
2: mean, it was interesting. That I think at one point, I think it was Lauren Southern um, brought up cultural pro- appropriation as something that actually she was basically saying, look, the left ag- in many ways agrees with us that we can't, that we have to have separate cultural practices, and that we can't, that we can't. Um, that we can't merge them together, that that's a problem. And so it's interesting to see the use of culture in similar ways to the way that she, you know, her her, her using cultural appropriation as a a way to back up her own argument, as a discourse.
0: And it's even with that concept of the West, right? So we've had this debate here with the Ramsey Centre, where, you know, like, you know, so the right wants to build this centre and about how great the West is, and then the left argument is, no, 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 the West is bad. I think that's not the radical argument. The radical argument is the concept is nonsense you know the west doesn't exist what you're using is a is a simple term for a a histo- an a incredibly complicated historical experience for incredibly diverse societies that were riven by antagonism right and but as soon as you know you put it like i either love the west or i hate the west you're on a conceptual terrain that is just like pure ideology you know and it need, and like i the same with culture, right? We can't talk about static, separate cultures being good or bad. They're contradictory products and material societies pulling in different ways, you know, and that that seems important, like, to me. All right, I'm going to have to head back to work. Simon, this has been really, really exciting. Is there anything about either the plebiscite or this that we haven't talked about? Would you like 30 seconds to talk about things you're doing and plug where where listeners can go read your stuff i don't think i have anything more to say
2: maybe uh you can find me on facebook at simon copland writer or at twitter at simon
1: copland
0: excellent all right john
1: thanks thanks simon for coming along it's been great i think it's really helpful discussion and yeah the simon copland appreciation
0: show goes on (laughs) (laughs) episode two of what is an unfolding epic
3: (laughs) all right okay (laughs) thanks for listening